once you acknowledge that depression can be largely a response to life, that just challenges the whole system we've built. The system we've built is not designed to talk about context. It's not designed to talk about how do we sit with you and hold you and love you and help you change your life, right? Um, we all live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important in life. Nobody thinks they're going to lie on their deathbed and think about all the things they bought, right? They will lie on their deathbed and think about moments of love and connection and meaning in their lives. And yet we've created a culture that is designed to get us to neglect those things. You have a natural human need to seek meaning in your life. And if you're doing something that's controlled by someone else, almost all of your waking hours, that disrupts your ability to create meaning out of it. That's Johan Hari, this week on The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. Welcome to the show, to the podcast. Good to have you here. Today, I sit down with journalist Johan Hari. Johan has written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and many other outlets. He is also the author of two quite profound books, Chasing the Scream, which chronicles his three-year investigation and research into the war on drugs and the nature of addiction, and his more recent book, Lost Connections, which is a compelling deep dive into the nature of depression and its underlying causes. Uh, as many of you know, these two subjects, addiction and depression, mental health in general, are quite important to me personally, and they are the motivating force behind my desire to connect with and share Johan's experience and wisdom with all of you. And this conversation is everything that I hoped it would be. That's coming up in a couple few, but first, let's take care of a little business. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests, all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. 
from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really want to do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense, and you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down, and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called Brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment so that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. Okay, Johan Hari, mental health, addiction, depression, anxiety. This is a super interesting exploration into the causes, the reasons, the cultural drivers behind these mental conditions, what contributes to their malignancy, what compels so many in this unhealthy direction and why they are so difficult to overcome. On the subject of addiction, Johan proffers a fairly controversial perspective that everything you think you know about addiction is wrong. It's the subject of his viral TED Talk, which I think has about 25 million views at this point. And although I don't agree with Johan on this point entirely, there's plenty of merit in his perspective on the curative impact of building deeper connections with nature and with each other, basically deeper connectivity, more intimacy. And with respect to depression and anxiety, the question really is, why are these things now at epidemic levels? And it's Johan's assertion that it's not entirely, but in large part attributable to the manner in which we live our modern lives, our, our misplaced values, which prioritize things like money, status, and materialism over, once again, deep human connection, love, intimacy, and purpose. Uh, a lot of people see Johan's ideas as relatively radical. I see them 
at least many of them, as basic common sense, fueled by an honest desire to really understand the root drivers behind mental and emotional well-being. So we can plot a more helpful and hopeful solution-based course forward. Uh, again, this is a fascinating conversation, one of particular interest, of course, if you happen to suffer from addiction or depression. But this is something that impacts all of us because chances are there's somebody in your life, somebody that you care for deeply who does suffer or struggles. So with that being said, here's Johan. Um, well, delighted to have you here. Thank you for coming up. I've been ah. looking forward to this conversation for a long time as we just sort of spoke a, a moment ago. Um, everything that you're about, the work that you do, uh, is definitely right in the sweet spot of the things that I love to talk about. I think the work you're doing is important, and uh, I'm excited to dig into it with you. All right, today. loads so, through thank you, Rich. You. Thanks yeah. so much. Uh, what, are you, what are you doing here in LA? Uh, well, I'm here for one reason that I'm not allowed to talk about because it's mm. not been announced yet, so I have to be slightly mysterious. Uh, but also, I was here to do. Um, I was at Politicon, you know, the kind oh, yeah, of yeah. Um, uh -huh. weird uh, political convention that happens here. So I was debating addiction with Chris Christie, the disgusting former governor oh, of New wow. Jersey, and Dr. Go? Drew. Um, so that was, uh, I wouldn't exactly call it fun, <laughs> but it was intriguing. That's interesting. Um, I'm familiar with Dr. Drew's opinions on addiction, yeah. but where does where does Chris Christie fall? Well, Christie pretends to be, um, you know, in favor of destigmatization but he got very angry when i asked him so he keeps saying you know i'm against stigma against people with addiction problems but he's not in favor of changing the laws and i said well the laws criminalize drug use and drug addiction yeah, that's right the genesis of the stigma exactly do you it's at least a significant expression of the stigma so i kind of said to him do you see any contradiction there how do you how do you reconcile them and he just did his kind of sub soprano shtick where he starts going buddy i'm from new jersey you don't get to bully me he just didn't want to have a serious mm. discussion about it and so what about dr drew um honestly i just didn't think he understood quite basic things about addiction he seemed like a fairly nice person but he didn't really understand uh, you know the debate about the opioid crisis we were discussing the opioid crisis the debate about the opioid crisis in the US is so removed from really basic facts about even what addiction is. I'm not critical of people for that. Before I started doing the research for my book, Chasing the Scream, which is about addiction and the drug war, I don't think I, I didn't understand many of these basic things as well. Um, I don't think Dr. Drew really, I think both Chris Christie and Dr. Drew were making the mistake, I don't want to over-ascribe this to Dr. Drew, I think he's a bit more sophisticated, than he's certainly more sophisticated than Chris Christie, but just making a basic mistake about what, why this crisis is happening, right? So if you'd asked me when I started doing the research for Chasing the Scream, whenever it was, eight years ago now, what causes addiction, let's say heroin addiction, because that played out in People I Love, and I would have looked at you like you're an idiot, and I would have said, well, obviously heroin causes heroin addiction, right? We've been told this story for 100 years about addiction that's become totally part of our common sense. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. I didn't understand why then, but as I got older, I realized we had drug addiction in my family. And um, and so when we, th I thought about saying like heroin addiction, obviously I thought, you know, we're sitting here in, in uh, you know, in, in Los Angeles. We think if, if, if I grabbed the next 20 people to walk past your house, and I injected them all with heroin every day for a month. 
like a villain in a Saw movie, at the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts. For a simple reason, there's chemical hooks in heroin that bodies would start to desperately physically need. Uh, they'd have this desperate physical craving. They'd be hooked. This is where we get the phrase hooked from. And that's what addiction is, right? That's what I thought had happened in my family. That's what I thought I'd seen happen in front of me. And I, I only learned that, that while there's some truth in that story, it's actually a small part of the story um, and that there's something much bigger and more important going on. When I went to Vancouver and interviewed this amazing man called Professor Bruce Alexander. So Professor Alexander explained to me um, this story we've got in our heads, that addiction is caused primarily by the chemical hooks in the drug, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your listeners can try them at home if they feel a little bit sadistic. You take a rat, you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go, right? That's our story. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander came along and said, well, hang on a minute. You put the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing that makes life meaningful for rats. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like paradise for rats, right? Mm -hmm. They've got loads of friends. They can have loads of sex. They've got loads of cheese and colored balls and wheels. Anything that makes life meaningful to rats, it's there in Rat Park. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when they don't have the things that make life meaningful to none when they do. There's loads of human examples that we can talk about of this, but the, the, to me, the core lesson of this is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, important though that is to many people. The opposite of addiction is connection and having your psychological needs met. And, and I think we need to understand the opioid crisis in that context, right? It's not a coincidence that the opioid crisis is at its most intense in the place where the non-opioid-based suicide rate is highest, where antidepressant prescriptions are highest. Um, that tells us something. D despair clusters together, right? There's um, a leading economist who's called the opioid deaths despair deaths. Whereas it seemed to me Dr. Drew and Chris Christie were, Chris Christie exclusively and Dr. Drew way too much we're focusing on the drug itself right now the drug itself plays a role mm -hmm. there are chemical hooks they do they can cause physical dependence but and neglecting much more so for example you know i think the, the the core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be once you understand that you can see why the drug war imposing more pain and more punishment on people is such a disaster, right? Because it causes more pain. It makes actually deepens the addiction. So I was very disturbed both that Chris Christie is a supporter of the drug war. He's in favor of punishment. I mean, he says, oh, well, we'll, we'll make the prisons nice treatment centers for some people rather than just brutal prisons. But that's still a criminal. You're still criminalizing people, stigmatizing them. Um, and the drug treatment centers he wants to put in the prisons are not so impressive either. And Dr. Drew was still saying things like, well, we need to impose negative consequences. You know, that, that can be helpful for some people. That is not helpful. That is, there is nowhere in the world that has reduced addiction through imposing negative consequences. As your friend of mine, Dr. Gabor Marte said, if, it, it said to me once, 
if negative consequences stopped addiction, there wouldn't be a single addict anywhere in the world because mm -hmm. what negative consequences have they not experienced? Yeah, I mean, listen, I agree with everything that you're saying. Certainly, I think to be fair to Dr. Drew, he's not going to be on Chris Christie's punitive page. Like he's he's been very outspoken I mean, was, about yeah. rehabilitation over punitive measures. But he was saying that there should be. <clears throat> he did say that with some of his. I was. This is what surprised yeah. me because I thought the well, the negative seen. consequences for your behavior. I think is. I think where 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 he's kind of the the space where he's dancing around. Is is something that I can relate to, which is when you. I've heard that you know I know about that rat study, and I think it's super uh, informative in terms of getting people to kind of rethink the paradigm. It's very powerful in that regard, but I also think it's it's more complicated than that. It is indeed certainly true that um, the compulsion to use that the addict is coming from a place of of being uncomfortable in their own skin, in their own life, whether that's the result of childhood trauma or some kind of psychological miswiring, which we can get into. It's, it's a complex you know, matrix of many factors that I think contribute to somebody becoming an addict versus somebody who's just a, a, a casual user in the case of you know, your heroin example. And you know, genetics, genetics probably plays a small role in that, some role. Um, but in terms of unpacking that, like. I know for myself, longtime sober guy, um, when you know my loved ones fled, that was not you know that was not lost on me. Like that was definitely a motivating factor in me finally um, reckoning with the damage that I had created and ultimately starting to walk the path towards sobriety. So I think there is some wisdom in in uh, in this idea of not being complicit and, um, as they say, codependent in an addict's behavior. And I thought one thing that was striking in your, your amazing TED Talk, which I loved, was this idea of um, moving towards the addict as, as opposed to away from them. This idea that, uh, that we should sing love songs, not war songs, uh, with respect to them, that we should bring the addict closer and let them know that we love them. I think that's important. But I also think it's important to use discernment so that the addict understands like this is not acceptable, that there is some conditional aspect to the relationship that if they do X, Y, and Z, that not necessarily that you're retracting your love, but that you can't make yourself available to be a punching bag for that person's errant ways. Yeah, I mean, love doesn't mean, I think you're making important points. Love doesn't mean giving someone everything they want in any situation, mm -hmm. right? You don't love your children by giving your child candy all the time. Um, no loving relationship involves just 100% giving the person what they want. And that goes for people with addictions and people without addictions. That's obviously true. Um, I think one of the reasons why the debate about the war on drugs is so charged is because it runs through the hearts of all of us, right? Everyone, I feel this, even now, after all the research I did for Chasing the Scream, everyone who has someone they love who's got an addiction problem, you know, has a part of them that thinks, God, someone should just stop you. Why are you being so stupid? Why are you being so destructive? And then there's another part that most people have that is compassionate and sees, oh, wait a minute, this is someone trying to deal with a very profound sense of pain. They're anesthetizing themselves. Actually, we need to deal with the causes of their pain. Um, yeah, because the drug is the solution, not the, exactly. it's not the, it's not the cause. It's not the problem itself. The problem is the person you're left with when you take the drugs away. I think it's not just the person you're left with. It's the environment, the yes. cage you're left with. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. a very challenging line in Marianne Faithfull's memoir, you know, the great British mm -hmm. rock star. Um, she says at one point, 
something like, so she had a heroin addiction in the 60s when she was homeless. She said, um, heroin saved my life because if it wasn't for heroin, I would have killed myself at that point. That's a very challenging thing to hear for a lot of people. It was challenging for me when I read it. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, Marianne Faithfull is not saying heroin is a good solution to despair. But I do think it's very important to understand why... But let's think about the opioid crisis, right? Why is this happening? Why, why are so <coughs> many vectors of despair? I mean, so think of it. It's when you, serving a need that is so profound that it outweighs the negative ramifications of the behavior. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Everyone listening to your, to your show knows that they have natural physical needs, right? Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. Our culture is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today. I love dentistry. I love gay marriage, a whole range of things. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. And this is manifesting in just an enormous range of problems, right? Think about, and this is what the subject of my more recent book, Lost Connections. You know, one in three middle-aged women in the United States at any given time is taking a chemical antidepressant. Even more are depressed and not taking drugs. Um, the suicide rate combined with opioid deaths is now so high that white male life expectancy has fallen for the first time in the entire peacetime history of the United States. You know, teenage girls according to Professor Jill Twenge, who's done really good research on this, now have the same anxiety. And the average American teenage girl now has the same average anxiety level as a mental patient had in the 1950s, right? So we've got this whole vector of despair, these different forms of despair. I would argue the political situation we're in is a manifestation of profound despair and anger. Um, we need to understand why this is happening. And at the moment, I think we're being offered stories that are too simplistic. So when it comes to the opioid crisis, we're being offered a story that's not false. The drug companies did do terrible things, um, that they do bear some responsibility. I'm in favor of the criminal prosecution of Purdue and various other things for mis-selling their drugs. But that's not the core of why this is happening, right? That if we think, a better analogy to help us to understand it, if you think about something that happened in, in Britain in the 18th, obviously I'm British, Britain in the 18th century. So at that time, huge numbers of people were driven out of the countryside into these disgusting urban slums in places like London and Manchester. They lost everything that had made life meaningful to them. And they're suddenly totally disorientated in this place they don't understand. And there was a huge outbreak of alcoholism. It was known as the gin craze. Mm -hmm. And it really did happen, right? There's a famous painting from the time called the Gin Lane of a mother downing a bottle of gin while her baby falls over some steps, right? And there really was, this, this crisis really did happen. And if you look at what people said at the time, what they said is, look at this evil drug gin. Look at what it's done to us. If only we could get rid of this evil drug gin, we wouldn't have this problem. Now, when we look back, we know it can't be gin that caused it. Because anyone in Britain who's over the age of 18 can go and buy gin. It's easier to get gin now than it was then. And while we still have some alcoholism, of course, we don't have mass alcoholism in the streets. We don't have babies falling out of windows. What changed? What changed is not the availability of the drug. 
what changes the amount of despair and pain in the society. If you want to understand why people are turning to painkillers in such enormous numbers, we have to understand why they're in such pain, right? I mean, people on the faculty at Harvard have much easier access to opiate-based painkillers than people in West Virginia who disproportionately don't have, um, don't have medical insurance. And yet West Virginia has a drastically higher level of opioid addiction than the faculty at Harvard. What's going on? It's not access to the drug, right? It's terrible, terrible deep pain. We've created a culture which for many people, it's not bearable to be present in, right? So you think about one false narrative is the, or false is the wrong word, one limited narrative is the opioid crisis is simply the result of opioids, and if only we got rid of the opioids, we'd all be okay again. When in fact what would happen is, think about Marianne Faithfull's quote or what you're saying, there would just, it would be in some ways better, fewer people would overdose, but there would be profound despair, right? Or think about depression. So when I was a teenager, I went to my doctor and I explained that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me and I couldn't control it, I couldn't regulate it. And my doctor told me a story that, again, I now realise was was really oversimplified. My doctor said, well, we know why people feel this way. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some people are just naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. All you need to do is take this drug. In, in this case, he gave me an antidepressant called Paxil. You're going to feel, you're going to be fine, right? So I started taking this antidepressant. I felt significantly better for a few months, real boost. And then this feeling of pain started to come back. So I went back to my doctor. Um, again, um, I felt better. Again, this feeling of pain came back. And I was really locked in this cycle uh, of taking higher and higher doses until for 13 years I was taking the maximum dose at the end of which I was still profoundly depressed. And I really felt haunted by these two mysteries. One is really related to what we're talking about. You know, I'm nearly 40. Every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased um, in the United States and across the Western world. I was like, well, why, right? If it was just a problem inside our brains, uh, which I think is simplistic in the way the chemical hook story is simplistic about drugs, if it was just a problem in our brains, why would it be rising so much? It can't just be that all our brains start to malfunction at the same time. There must be something deeper, deeper going on. Um, and so I ended up going on this big journey all over the world mm -hmm. for Lost Connections, as you know, and, and I learned that there's kind of scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety, uh, two of which are biological, but most of which are factors mm -hmm. in the way we live now. Yeah, it's interesting that the work that you've done in addiction and in that, that first book um, really boils down to an assessment of how we're living culturally, this, uh, this lack of connectivity that we have that is fueling, uh, in large part, um, this increase in, in a substance addiction across the board. When I, and then how you've now extended that to look at um, mental disorders, specifically depression and anxiety, um, and it's, it's really the same thing. And in order to really kind of understand this, as we begin to you know, look at these nine reasons, which we're gonna get into, um, we, have to look, we have to like step back and look at society. You know, it's, it's like to echo Henry David Thoreau, you know, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And it's more true now than, than ever. People are more disconnected from their fellow man. I know you have that statistic where, I don't know how long ago it was, that if you ask somebody how many good friends do you have that would come to your aid, it was somewhere in the, in the range of five. And now for a lot of people, it's zero. The most common right? answer now when you ask people, how many close friends do you have or you could turn to in a crisis is none. 
right? Mm. So there's been this enormous, and this is one of many pieces of evidence shows, there's been, an, we are the loneliest society there's ever been, right? There's been this enormous explosion in loneliness. Ironic, uh, given the connectivity that the devices we all carry around in our back pocket, you know, provide us with, but it's elusive, illusory compared to real connectivity with another human being. And I think laid on top of this is a system, a cultural priority, that this engine that is driving us to distance ourselves further and further away from each other. Because the mandate is to succeed, to get as much as you can for yourself, to live this life of, of, of luxury, of convenience. Um, and we have lost sight of what it is that, that truly makes us human in the most beautiful way, which is our relationship with each other, with our families, the networks that we create, the connectivity, the cooperation that allowed this species that, you know, if you ask Yuval Noah Harari, should have never survived, yet we were able to do so simply because of this genetic predisposition that we have to be connected with each other. And, and that's what we've lost. And I think we're now seeing on a mass epidemic scale the results of what happens when the human being is removed from that basic requirement that we have in order to feel contented, fulfilled, purposeful, engaged with life, and, and, and the sense that, that the lives that we're pursuing have meaning. It is a crisis of consciousness. It's a spiritual crisis as much as anything else. And it really boils down to the way that we, we've structured the society in which we live. I think there's a lot of things in what you just said that are totally right. So I learned a lot about this from a man called Professor John Cassiopo, who sadly just died, but he was the leading expert on loneliness in the world. He was at the University of Chicago. And he explained a few things to me that were really important that touch on what you said. So he, he talked about, he said, to, I remember him saying to me, why are we alive? Why do we exist? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They usually were not faster than the animals they tracked down. They usually weren't bigger than the animals they tracked down. What they were was much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. So just like bees evolved to need a hive, humans evolved to need a tribe. In fact, humans who had wandered off on their own would have died out, right? They, a species inclined to do that wouldn't, would not have continued to exist. Um, and actually, if you think about those circumstances, if you were separated from the tribe in the circumstances where we evolved, you would be depressed and anxious for a really good reason. You were probably about to die. Those are the instincts we have, right? If you separate a bee from its hive, um, it will go crazy. Look at it. It will lose its mind, right? It will panic. It will freak out. It will be profoundly distressed, and eventually it will just give up. In a similar way, we are the first humans to ever try to disband our tribes, to try to live alone. And this is a disaster for us, a real disaster. And one of the things I wanted to think about is, given that there's overwhelming evidence that is a cause of depression, what is the antidepressant for that, right? And I learned um, one of the heroes of my book, Lost Connections, is this amazing man called Dr. Sam Everington, who's a doctor in East London, right? a poor part of East London where I lived for a long time. And Sam was really uncomfortable, because like me, he thinks there's some role for chemical antidepressants. But he was just very conscious of two things. Firstly, most of the people he was giving chemical antidepressants to were becoming depressed again. It was giving a bit of relief. Mm -hmm. And secondly, they were depressed for perfectly good reasons. So, you know, one of the nine causes that we're talking about here is lost connection. Uh, sorry, is loneliness. Um, so one day he decided to pioneer a different approach. 
a woman came to see him who I got to know quite well called Lisa Cunningham. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with just crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'm going to carry on giving you this drug. I'm also going to prescribe something else. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as dog shit alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. Mm. It's just kind of scrubland. And Sam said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is come and turn out a couple of times a week. I'm going to come too because I've been quite anxious. And with a group of other depressed and anxious people, we're going to turn dog shit alley into something nice, right? The first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But they decided this group that they were going to learn gardening, right? They were inner city East London people like me. They didn't know anything about gardening, right? They, just, they started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. Um, but an even more important thing started to happen. They began to, oh, by the way, I should say about that, that there's loads of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful yeah, Connection with nature and connection with others. Exactly. They started to form a tribe they started to form a group. They started to care about each other. They started to solve each other's problems. They started to notice if one of them didn't show up and go and check on them. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for an obvious reason, it was dealing with some of the reasons why they were depressed and anxious in the first place. This is something I saw all over the world from Sao Paulo to Sydney to San Francisco. The best strategies for dealing with this epidemic of despair, this depression, this anxiety, this addiction, are the ones that deal with the reasons why we feel like this in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting that I feel like we're seeing this trend of um, people like yourself that are coming out and looking at problems that, we, that we're experiencing as a culture, as human beings. Um, that we have traditionally treated in a certain way, and that way being kind of part and parcel of, of the, the gestalt of the scientific method, uh, producing less and less beneficial results. And then now we're kind of looking in the rear view mirror and saying, hold on, uh, I know we all think this is working, but it's actually not working so well. Uh, why don't we look back through history and see how we've dealt, the, dealt with these problems as a species in the past and realizing that there's a lot of wisdom there that we've overlooked. We like to think that we've transcended uh, you know, these primal needs, that we can live in these hermetically sealed environments, that we can drive around in air conditioning and we can you know, do what we do and be perfectly fine and pop a pill if we feel less than stellar and that's the end of the story. When in fact, uh, in order to really fully redress this, we need to look at it holistically and understand that it's not one thing, it's not um, a constant or a variable that we can just tweak, but we need to uh, really reassess how we're fundamentally living in, you know, in every aspect of that. I think that's a really good way of putting it. You know, the Indian philosopher Krishnamurti said it's no sign of good health to be well-adjusted to a sick society. And if you are uncomfortable and distressed in a world where Donald Trump is the most powerful person, that's not a sign that you're crazy. That's a sign that you're sane. And I, and I think it, it's important for us to think about this. So there's, 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 there's extremely strong scientific evidence that there are three kinds of cause of depression and anxiety. And to some degree, they play out in, in, in fact, all forms of um, me mental and emotional problems. So there's biological causes, 
like your genes, mm-hmm. like real brain changes that happen when you become depressed that can make it somewhat harder to get out. Those are real, right? There are people who deny them. They are definitely wrong. The evidence is very clear on that. There are psychological causes, which are how you think about yourself. And then there are social causes, which are how we live together. And these are all real. But what we've done is we've largely as a culture told a story that focuses exclusively on the biology, right? Mm -hmm. Think about what my doctor told me. There's just a problem in your brain. The problem with that, well, the first problem with that is it's not true, right? But the second problem with that is what it tells people is your distress doesn't mean anything. It's like a glitch in a computer program. And someone who really helped me to think a bit differently about this, I went to interview this South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield, who's a wonderful man. And he happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they introduced um, chemical antidepressants for the first time for the people in that country. And the local doctors, the Cambodian doctors, had never heard of these drugs. So they were like, what are they? And he explained. And they said, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy, like St. John's Wort or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who one day stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. He worked in the rice fields. So they gave him an artificial limb and he went back to work in the rice fields after, I forget what it was, some months. But apparently it's very painful to work underwater with an artificial leg. I'm guessing it was traumatic for obvious reasons. The guy started to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed, developed classic depression. They said to Dr. Summerfield, well, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And he said, what? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up so much. Mm -hmm. So they bought him a cow. With a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to, to Dr. Summerfield, so that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about this the way we have, that sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy, you're not a machine with broken parts, You're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is practical love and support from the people around you to get those deeper needs met. It's a very different way of talking about these problems that explains to people their pain is a signal. It means something. It evolved for a reason. It's telling you your needs aren't being met. Or some other things, obviously reference to a biology. Or there's some, you know, psychological event that occurred that you haven't really fully processed or worked through. There's some... There's some hitch in your operating system that that requires redress. In one so I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't call it a hitch in an operating system. I would well, say if you're experiencing it's a grief in the lo- in the loss of a loved one or something like like yes, there are natural um, reactions that uh, you know we've kind of been told we should just get over that kind of stuff rather than really just embrace them for what they are because that is that is what it is to be human and that's certainly fine and to stigmatize that or just to, to kind of pathologize that is certain is certainly wrong but they're messages they're wake-up calls that yeah, they're signals yeah, exactly yeah we're brought to you today by birch if you're serious about optimizing your sleep listen up i've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut eye and i can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation and if your bed is old if it's uncomfortable lumpy then your sleep 
inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made. And that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years. And I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily personally for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And 
they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. To go back to the cultural piece, you know, if someone's grieving the loss of a loved one and they're uncomfortable sitting with that grief, we have a system that's set up to uh, help you and say, you don't need to feel this way, like take this, take this pill, right? Because we've gotten to a place where it's almost um, understood that we never need to feel bored or uncomfortable or ill at ease, right? That we can, that we can just <laughs> medicate all of that. And, and implicit in that is this idea that we should all be happy all the time. I think people are right to want to be happy and satisfied in their lives. The, the question is, it's a deeper thing I think you're getting at, which is, so let's think about grief, for example. There was this thing that happened in the 1970s that I think is really revealing. So in the 1970s, the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, who are the, obviously the main body of psychiatrists in the US and psychologists, decided to do a kind of basic kind of obvious thing. They decided they were going to standardize how depression was diagnosed across the US. So up to then, doctors were just basically deciding for themselves oh, what, what depression meant. Uh -huh. So the APA drew up a, check, a simple checklist of 10 symptoms, and kind of obvious things, crying a lot, you know, uh, you could guess them. Um, and they this 10, this 10 list of 10 symptoms, and they send it to doctors all over the United States, and they say, if your patient shows more than five of these 10 symptoms for more than two weeks, diagnose them as mentally ill and do what you can. So they send this out. But within a quite a short period afterwards, psychiatrists start to come back and go, we've got a bit of a problem here. If we use this checklist in the way you're telling us to, we're going to have to diagnose every grieving person in the yeah. United States is depressed because these are also the symptoms of grief. And the APA got together and they said, well, that's not what we meant. Uh, clearly, we didn't intend that. So they invented something that became known as the grief loophole, where they said, okay, if your patients come to you and they've got more than five of these 10 symptoms for more than two weeks, diagnose them as mentally ill, unless someone they love has died in the last year, in which case it doesn't count. They're That's not, the they're only not, exception. They're not crazy. Well, exactly. So they started doing this. But this began to beg the question, hang on a minute, why is someone you love dying? What we're saying, is, what we're meant to tell doctors and tell people is, so if you feel this way, it's just a problem in your brain that just needs to be drugged into submission, except there is one circumstance in life where it's an understandable response. Well, why is that the only circumstance? Why, if my mother dies, I'm allowed to feel like that, but not if I lose my job? Why not if I become homeless? Why not if I'm stuck in a job I hate for the next 40 years, right? But what that does is a wonderful woman called um, Dr. Joanne Cassiatore, who's the leading expert on traumatic grief in the United States, has redone amazing work on this, asking, well, once you acknowledge that depression can be largely a response to life, that just challenges the whole system we've built. The system we've built is not designed to talk about context. It's not designed to talk about how do we sit with you and hold you and love you and help you change your life, right? Um, as she puts it, 
we just don't understand pain in this culture. We've developed a bizarre way of talking about pain. It's so bizarre that I did an interview recently on a radio show um, where I was talking about, we were talking before, in a similar way to the way we were talking before about loneliness causing depression. And the interviewer said to me, well, this is an extremely controversial theory. And I thought, how did we get to the point where it was regarded as controversial to point out the most banal and obvious thing, which is, if you're lonely, you're going to be much more likely to be acutely mm -hmm. unhappy. Um, but, but So I think the grief exception debate reveals something really deep about how we have misunderstood pain. And so Joanne, Dr. Cassiatore, who'd be a great person for you to talk to and give an intro to her, she's an extraordinary woman. Um, her baby died during birth, her daughter Cheyenne. And she was devastated. And she was horrified to be... Um, to see how many other grieving parents were very rapidly being diagnosed as mentally ill and, and, and drugged, right? Because the APA was so uncomfortable with this debate about the grief loophole, they just got rid of it. It doesn't mm -hmm. exist anymore, right? So now you can be diagnosed almost immediately after your child dies. In fact, 9% of um, parents who lose a baby in the United States are diagnosed and drugged in the first 48 hours, right? And as Dr. Cassiatore puts it, we grieve because we've loved right? Grief is a testament to our love. It's not a glitch. It's not a pathology. It's a profound form of love. If someone you love dies, it is natural and necessary to grieve. If you interrupt that process, if you pathologize the pain, if you say, you know, it's a sign of... So, for example, one of Joanne's clients, she now treats people with trauma, uh, who've gone through terrible traumatic grief, you know, one of her parent, one of the parents she worked with, um, mentioned to a psychiatrist that she, when she would lie there at night, she would sometimes hear her son's voice talking to her, not in a distressing way. In fact, soothed her. Entirely natural form of grieving. She was diagnosed as psychotic and prescribed loads of antipsychotics. You can see what a ironically, what a crazy system that is that's telling us we're crazy yeah. for having perfectly natural human responses. Yeah, it's interesting that somebody would say that that these ideas are controversial. I mean, there, there, there is a little controversy around your book, and I read a couple of those articles trying to understand what exactly that controversy is. And it seems to me to be a misreading of what you actually say in the book. It's, it's this perspective that you're saying, everything we know about um, SSRIs and, and, and these, these drugs that we're over-prescribing to people, um, is wrong, uh, we shouldn't be doing this at all, and here's the real reason, when in fact you're saying, listen, let's look at these SSRIs, let's look at these drugs, let's look at the system and the history behind how we got to this point so that we can fully understand um, the context uh, of the world that we're talking about. And nowhere in the book do you say these things should be gotten rid of. You say, mm -hmm. look, if this is working for you, you should do it. I've been on and off them. And for certain people, they do work. Uh, and you're also not saying that any of these ideas are new or your own, or that they aren't already part of the literature and the protocols that a lot of you know, well-intentioned psychologists and psychiatrists are putting into practice with their patients. It's just that it's not enough, right? It's, it's, it, you're zeroing in on the scenario in which 
um, the overplayed scenario in which the person goes to their shrink or doctor. And because of the healthcare system that we have, they have 15 minutes to diagnose this person and prescribe them something. And more often than not, people leave those appointments with, with a script that they go and they fill. And that's the end of the story. There isn't that aftercare. There isn't the functional medicine, you know, sort of um, rubric established that gives the well-intentioned medical practitioner the time and the bandwidth to really have the kind of conversations that are required in order to provide the person with the optimal care that they need. So I think there's loads of things in what you said. I think you're right that, I mean, so the the, the people who responded to the book in the way that, that you mentioned, I mean, they to be fair to them, they admit they hadn't read it. So yeah, there was a bunch of yeah. people who they were like they got little um, snippets of it or yeah. whatever and were writing reviews. Based yeah, so on it's not that. even a misreading; it's a non-reading. Yeah. <laughs> but the but no, I think in terms of but I do understand why some people when they hear some of these things find it deeply challenging because I found it really challenging. Right for thirteen years, I was very committed to the idea that my depression was just a problem with my brain chemistry, and I found that relieving in all sort of ways. I'm happy to talk about, but. I think there's a few things in what you said that are worth bringing up. So one is, uh, you're absolutely right, I'm not against chemical antidepressants. I just think we need to have a nuanced conversation about them. So the two most important facts about chemical antidepressants that I learned from the leading scientists in the world who've studied this are, one is, so depression is generally measured by something called the Hamilton scale. I've always felt really sorry for whoever Hamilton was, that we only remember him by how miserable we are. But anyway. Um, this is the 1 to 51 thing. Yeah, so yeah. it goes from 1 where you would be dancing around in ecstasy or maybe on ecstasy to 51 where you would be acutely suicidal and uh, to give you a sense of movement on the hamilton scale if you improve your sleep patterns you'll generally gain six points on the hamilton scale and if you your sleep patterns deteriorate you'll generally go six points the other way i can definitely validate that <laughs> yeah you've had children so i could, yeah um but um so according to the leading expert at harvard medical school who's looked at the data all the data, including the data the drug companies didn't publish, but he managed to get a hold of. Um, on average, over time, chemical antidepressants will move people 1.8 points on the Hamilton scale. It's important to say a few things. Firstly, that's an average. So I initially got much more than that. Over time, I got less. It's important to say 1.8 points isn't nothing, mm -hmm. right? That, that's a real effect. If a good night of sleep gets you six points. Yeah. I mean, some people will get more than that. But I think that that fits also with the... And by the way, some people say he slightly underestimates the effect of looking at the same data. They say it's three points on the Hamilton scale, but no one says it's more than three points. Or so more than half of improving your sleep patterns. But that fits with, I think, the even more important piece of research, which is that the only good long-term research we have on the effects of chemical antidepressants when it comes to depression is something called the STAR-D trial. It's really simple. They follow... People go to their doctor, they say, I'm depressed. And they follow... Uh, the, the study follows them over two years to see, or 18 months to two years, to see, well, do they stop being depressed? What it found is the vast majority of people taking chemical antidepressants do become depressed again. Now, that doesn't mean they don't get some relief. They do get some relief, a lot of them. But what we can see is it's not solving the problem. And in a way, I think this is a rather banal insight. It actually, in certain cases, can prevent you from solving the actual problem because you think that you've solved it when actually you're just treating a symptom without actually getting at the rationale, the reason behind what's driving the depressive emotions. I think that's. I think there's several things going on there. I think you're right to raise that. So one is some people benefit and get a benefit which outweighs the side effects. It's true of some of my closest relatives. Some people 
get a benefit and enormous side effects. Like a lot of people, I gained a huge amount of weight. 70% mm -hmm. of men uh, affects their sexual functioning, all sorts of problems. So some people gain a benefit, but the side effects outweigh the benefit. Some people don't get a benefit and get horrendous side effects. But I think you've gone to the, I think in a way, the more important thing, which is if you are told a story that your depression is simply a biological problem and can only be treated with drugs, it comes back to what we were saying, that just tells people there's no meaning to their pain. It actually cuts them off from finding the causes of their pain in their life, and it cuts us off as a society. Mm -hmm. But I would just say, uh, just a second thought about what you said before, and it's worth saying this is not my view, this is the view of the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organization. But when you said, you know, so part of the problem is that your doctors only have 15 minutes, and so on, it's actually seven minutes now is the average. But the, that's true, and it's an even deeper thing. If we think about road accidents, right, car accidents, it's still the single biggest cause of death, although opioids are coming up close behind it in our society. Um, when you think about how do we prevent road accidents, right, one of the, or deaths in car crashes, one of the things we do is we have doctors in emergency rooms and they do heroic jobs when someone's already been horrifically mauled uh, and the doctors are heroes and they're amazing, but they are not the people who save the most lives, right? What do we do as a society? We have driving tests, so we make sure you can drive before you get onto the road. We have um, speed limits, we have seatbelts, we have airbags, we send the cops out to chase down people driving chaotically to see if they're DUIs or drug driving. Environmental control. Exactly, precisely because it's a social problem, we have an enormous social response, of which one part, which is amazing and heroic, is the biomedical response of doctors patching you back together, but that's one thing on a big long list, right? Um, in the same way, the evidence is overwhelming that depression and anxiety have huge social and psychological causes alongside the biological causes, right? Very few people will dispute that, although it's rarely explained to the public. Um, that needs a social response, right? So there are lots of things that the evidence shows very clearly can reduce this epidemic that are much earlier down the chain, if you like, than by the time the person becomes acutely depressed and goes to their doctor. So I'll give you an example. I noticed that lots of the people I know who are depressed and anxious, their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. So I started to, to think, well, am I, are the people I know unusual? I started to look at the evidence of this. So Gallup did the best research, enormous study, three-year study, that figured out how do people feel about their jobs in the United States. What they found was 13% of us like our jobs most of the time, 1-3%. 63% of people... actually pretty high. That's higher than I would have thought. <laughs> You're a yeah, pessimist. Yeah. Oh, my God. 63% <laughs> of um, what they called sleepworking. You don't like it. You don't hate it. You just kind of mm -hmm. get through the day. And 24% of people hate and fear their jobs. I was quite struck when I saw that. That means 87% of people don't like the thing they're doing most, most of their of waking the lives. Mm -hmm. And jobs, you know, most jobs these days are not nine to five. They're, you know, from the minute you wake up in the morning and check your phone to the last, you know, check on the phone before you go to bed and constantly we're, you know, we're all on call 24 seven. If you don't like what you do, uh, I can't, it's, it's academic that this is gonna lead to psychological issues. Well, I think that's right. And I started to look for the evidence. Well, how do, 
is there any evidence about depression and work? I discovered there's this amazing man, Australian social scientist I went to go and see called Professor Michael Marmot, um, who, who made a real breakthrough about this in the 1970s. So he discovered the key factor, not the only one, but the key factor that causes depression at work. If you go to work tomorrow and you are controlled, so you have low or no control over your work, you are much more likely to become depressed and anxious. And at first, when I was looking at this evidence, and I, taught, I went to interview Professor Marmot a few times, I kept misunderstanding it. So I thought the lesson of this was, okay, you've got this elite 13% at the top who get to have nice jobs where they control it, and they're going to be fine. And then you've got everyone else who's condemned to this shitty life. And I thought, wow, my brother's an Uber driver, my dad was a bus driver, my grandmother's job was to clean toilets. Are we saying that, like, these people I love are condemned? And Professor Marmot kept explaining, it's not the work that makes you depressed. It's a lack of control over the work. And there's something we can do about that, which I think is the equivalent of your seat bags and your DUI arrests, right? So I went to Baltimore and went to interview a wonderful person called Meredith Keogh. Um, Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night just sick with anxiety. Um, she had an office job. As she would tell you, it wasn't the worst office job in the world. She wasn't being bullied or harassed or anything. But it was monotonous low control she couldn't bear the thought this was going to be the next 40 years of her life so one day with her husband josh meredith did this quite bold thing and at first when people hear this they think i'm going to think i'm saying you should do this too are you going to think i can't do that and it's true most people can't it leads to a different insight so josh worked in a bike store in baltimore um you know and he'd done it since he was a teenager and as you can imagine that's insecure work. It's controlled. You don't even have any vacation, paid vacation, or paid sick pay, unless your boss happens to be generous. Um, and one day, Josh and his colleagues were in their bike store, and they just asked themselves, what does our boss actually do? Right, they liked their boss. He wasn't a terrible guy. But they were like, we seem to fix all the bikes, and he seems to make all the money. Um, could, could, this, could this work out differently here? And they decided they were going to set up a bike store of their own that worked on a different principle. So the place they'd worked before was a corporation, right? Mm. Most people listening to your show work in corporations. You know how it works. You've got a boss at the top who's like the dictator, and we're all the little serfs, and sometimes the dictator chooses to be nice, and sometimes they don't, but you don't have much say over that. Josh and his friends and colleagues, and Meredith, decided they were going to set up a bike store that works on a different principle, an older American principle. It's a democratic cooperative. They don't have a boss. They take the decisions about the business together by voting. In practice, they agree almost all the time, but they vote once every couple of weeks. Um, they share the profits, obviously. They share out the good tasks and the shitty tasks, so no one gets stuck with the shitty tasks. Um, and one of the things that was fascinating, spending time with them at Baltimore Bicycle Works, which is their store, is how many of them talked about having been depressed and anxious in this previous way of working, but were not depressed and anxious in, in this different way of working. And it, and it totally fits with what Professor Marmot had taught me. It's not like they quit their jobs fixing bikes and went off to become Beyonce's backing singers, right? They fixed bikes before they fixed bikes now. The difference is now they've got control over their work. And when you control your work, you can create meaning out of it, right? If you have an idea, you can try to persuade the people around you. You can try to put it into practice. You, you don't feel humiliated. You don't feel subordinated. There's no reason why we should be structuring our society so most of us are spending time in institutions that make us feel like shit, right? We can it's give a sense of agency. Exactly. Right? It's, I mean, it's multifaceted because you have ownership, you have decision-making control, you have some you know, sense of uh, decision-making power over your hours, I would imagine. There's a whole variety of things that get played into that, but fundamentally, it's about agency over your life. 
And when people lack that, whether it's in their job or other areas of their life, that's going to lead to a sense of disempowerment that I think will quickly, you know, cascade into despair. You have a, and that's a really good point. You have a natural human need to to seek meaning in your life, and if you're doing something that's controlled by someone else, almost all of your waking hours. You, that disrupts your ability to create meaning out of it, right? I think um, the idea of meaning gets confused. Like if you say, well, does your life have meaning or what is the, you know, are you living a meaningful life? That can get misconstrued into, um, you know, this idea that you're on a grand quest to answer some universal question or something like that. But I think at its you're core, Frodo, you know what right? I mean? Yeah, like you're, you're, yeah, you're searching for the ring or, you know, like you're trying to find God. But... It's really just, I think, some some sense of, of control and purposefulness on a very basic level that so many of us uh, so many of us lack. And as you know, cities become larger, and all these, what you're seeing is the the um, the acceleration of specialization in all of these fields, where now jobs become so regimented into performing these very, you know, very specific tasks. Um, you see it in medicine. It used to be the family doctor who paid house calls. Now every doctor has a very specific specialty that allows them to be very good at that one thing, but they, they lack a general understanding or not. Like we lose sight of the bigger picture. And I think when you know we're being funneled in that direction of greater and greater specificity, with that comes a loss of that level of agency as well. This is one of the causes of um, depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections that I found uh, quite challenging, actually. So everyone knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. But there's equally strong evidence that our kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. No question about it. Yeah, for for thousands of years, philosophers have said, you know, from Confucius to Socrates on down, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is the gist of what he said. We all think we're going to be the exemption to that rule, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're like, yeah, 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 I get it, but... Well, this is what was fascinating because although people have thought that for a long time, no one had actually scientifically investigated it until I got until an incredible man I got to know called Professor Tim Casser, who's at Knox College in Illinois, started to do amazing research into this. And Professor Casser discovered um, some really important things. One of the things he discovered is um, the more you think life is about money and status and showing off the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious because that's not a way of living that meets your deeper needs. He also found as a society, as a culture, we've become much more driven by these junk values. They've really begun to dominate the culture over time. Um, and it's making us feel terrible. Right? There was a little experiment. This wasn't done by Professor Kasser. It was done just before he started his work, but I think it's kind of a revealing one. It's done in 1978. It's really simple. They got a bunch of five-year-olds and they split them into two groups. And the first group was shown an advertisement, two advertisements for a specific toy, whatever the equivalent of Dora the Explorer or the Teletubbies was in 1978. Second group was shown no advertisements. Then they say to all the kids, okay, kids, you've got a choice now. You can either play with a nice boy 
who doesn't have the toy that was in the ad, or you can play with a nasty boy who's got the toy that was in the ad. The kids who have not seen the advert choose the nice boy. The kids who haven't, sorry, the kids who haven't seen the advert choose the nice boy. The kids who have seen the advertisement choose the nasty boy who's got the toy. Mm-hmm. Just two advertisements primed those kids to choose an inanimate lump of plastic over the possibility of connection and fun and friendship, right? Everyone sees more than two adverts a day, right? We're just bombarded with it. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I don't know what the number is, but it's got to be in the hundreds, if not thousands, every single day, depending upon where you live and your media habits. Well, as Professor Kasser put it to me, you know, we we are we we all live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important in life, right? Nobody listening to your show thinks they're going to lie on their deathbed and think about all the things they bought, right? They will lie on their deathbed and think about moments of love and connection and meaning in their lives. And yet, we've created a culture that is designed to get us to neglect those things. And Professor Kasser proposes two kinds of solutions to this. So one is we need to just get these contaminants out of the environment, right? Analogous to getting rid of environmental contaminants, you know. So I went to Sao Paulo in Brazil. They just banned outdoor advertising, right? Uh, That's one thing we can do. We should much more tightly regulate advertising. Advertising is the ultimate frenemy, right? Imagine an advert that said to you, hey, Rich, you look great today. You smell great. You're doing fine. You don't need anything more. Save your money. That would be the worst advert (laughs) ever, right, from the perspective of the advertising industry. Only the advertising industry talks about this openly in their documents. It's about creating manufactured wants, manufactured needs, creating feelings of inadequacy that they then have to keep selling the solution to over and over again. There was a kind of example a few years ago that was a nice illustrated rare moment when people pushed back where um, um, a cosmetics company um, started to sell a product that said, are you embarrassed by how wrinkly and disgusting your armpits are? Uh-huh. Compassionately, we've created this beautiful solution. Of course, no one was worried about how their armpits look because no sane person thinks about that, right? Of course, what it's subtly saying is, you're like the ultimate friend of me, oh, babe, I really care about you. I'm on your side. Just so you know, people are kind of saying your armpits look uh-huh. gross. You can see how it works, right? That was a moment when people really kicked back. There was another good moment in London Um I guess two years ago now where um, a company that did, I think they were protein shakes, launched a huge ad campaign all over the London subway system that said, um, are you beach body ready? And had a picture of an impossibly buff man or woman, right? Uh, the implication being, if you don't look like these people, you're not ready and you better start drinking our protein shakes, right? Uh and there was a huge backlash to get people vandalised it, and in the end they took them down from the subway system. I think the mayor actually, Mayor of London City Khan, actually banned them. Uh, because, of course, we could see the... Occasionally they go too far and we see the implicit message, right? Mm-hmm. But most of the time we're just soaking this up. So part of the solution is get the contaminants out of the environment. Just get rid of most advertising, extremely tightly regulate what remains. But Professor, How Kansas, likely is that? A lot more likely than gay marriage seemed 50 years ago. You think? Wow. You You know, a lot more likely than a black president seemed 50 years ago. A lot more likely than President Trump seemed five years ago, right? Go either way. But the... um, We're all the beneficiaries of things that seem completely impossible, right? I mean, my grandmothers were not allowed to have a bank account once they got married, right? Of their own. That's not so long ago, Right. right? The weekend was a crazy radical idea when American trade unionists proposed it for the first time. Now we take it for granted, you know. So, um... We're all the beneficiaries of impossible-seeming things that people fought for and didn't give up and demanded. Um... But Professor Kasser also said there's another... 
another set of solutions, which are actually more immediately achievable, which are um, about how we inculcate these, these more meaningful values in ourselves. So he did this interesting experiment with a guy called Nathan Dungan, who I interviewed. So Nathan was a, it came back in a kind of slightly funny way. Nathan was a financial advisor in Minneapolis to adults, help them do budgeting, things like that. And one day he got contacted by this school in a middle-class neighborhood, not a particularly fancy neighborhood, saying, look, we've got a problem. The kids in their school were demanding really expensive consumer objects like Nike sneakers, and they were getting extremely distressed when they didn't get them. And it was freaking out. The school was freaking out. The parents are like, what can we do? And they asked him to come in and do what he did, which was give budgeting advice. So he comes in to advise the kids on budgeting and quite quickly realizes this ain't a budgeting issue, right? There's something deeper going on here. So he starts to work with the... Uh, he did this interesting experiment that was then monitored, that, so set up with Professor Casser that was monitored. So what they did is they would get teenagers and their parents to come. They would meet in groups. Uh, I think it was once a fortnight for six months, something like that. And at first, the first day, the very first session, the teenagers and parents had to write down what they thought they had to have, right? And in, of course, people would initially say food and shelter and perfectly sensible things. And quite quickly, the teenagers would say, I got to have, you know, whatever the latest mm -hmm. designer object was. And, and then they would say, tell me what you would feel if you got those objects, if you got that thing. And quite quickly, the teenage, quite quickly, it was clearly not about an inherent property of the consumer object. So, for example, when I was a teenager, I remember craving Nike sneakers. You could not have had a child who was further away from playing basketball like Michael Jordan than me, right? Uh -huh. uh, why did I want it? You know, why did these kids want it? They would say things like, well, I would feel accepted by the group. Yeah, it's social acceptance. It's where you fall in the social pecking order. And I think at that age, uh, the social dynamics are, are, feel like life and death. It's very acute at that age. And it didn't take long for the kids to articulate what you're saying, for them to go, huh, why do I think that, right? It, it, they didn't need much prompting as the sessions went on. Mm. So where did you get the idea that you will have value as an individual if you have this lump of shitty... Right, from the 8,000 commercials and billboards that I've seen in the last 24 hours. Exactly. So they would... Firstly, what they did was work on seeing, well, where did those junk values come from? They would look at the ads. Everyone likes to think they're smarter than the ad. And everyone began to realize, oh, shit, the ad got me, right? But then they did it, what I thought was the more interesting bit. They began to say, okay, well, set that stuff aside. What do you actually value? What do you think is actually important in life? And they started writing about that. They started discussing it in groups. We don't really have those conversations very often in our culture. Certainly much less than we have conversations about shopping. Um, and they started talking about what they actually thought was important, what actually gave them joy in their life. Some of them talked about playing music, some of them talked about just love, there were a whole range of things. Some talked about being in the natural world. And they started talking about, well, how could you build more of that stuff into your life and less of the junk? And they started to do it, and this was monitored over time. And what it found was just this intervention, a meeting once a fortnight, led to a really significant shift in people's values. What this tells us, Professor Kasser argues, I think persuasively, is these insights are just below the surface, right? Um, this is not like explaining quantum physics or complex linguistics or something. In some ways, these are almost banal insights. And yet, the reason they have to be stated and argued for is because we created a culture that's all about getting us to not see them. It's a machine that, in fact, 
faces real challenges if we stop buying crap, right? The problem is if we carry on buying the crap and thinking that's what life is about, we have the crisis, not that mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about, and you can see again, and we only touched on a few of the causes, obviously, that I talk about in Lost Connections, but you can see again, this is a very different story than telling someone there's just a chemical missing in your brain and all you need to do is drug yourself, right? It leads to a different set of attempted solutions. And I believe very strongly in antidepressants in the sense that people are really depressed. They're not making it up. They're not imagining yeah. it. They are terribly depressed and anxious. They need solutions to that. But what I argue is we need to expand our concept of what antidepressants are. For some people, one of the things on the menu should remain chemical antidepressants. They have value. But we need a much broader range of antidepressants on the cow model, right? That group that Nathan and Professor Kasser led, where they got people to talk about their values and it shifted their values over time, that's an antidepressant. Yeah. That gardening program in East London, that was an antidepressant. Obviously, the last third of the book is about these different kinds of antidepressants. They are just as real and just as important easily as the, the kind of chemical solutions because mm -hmm. they're attending to some of the other causes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think we're seeing some interesting cultural movements at the moment that are kind of uh, incarnations of what you're talking about. I mean, this whole minimalism thing uh, that a lot of young people are super, you know, all about and keen on. Um, that didn't really exist even, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. Now there's movies about it, there's movements, there's YouTube channels, there's people with podcasts about this uh, who are basically speaking to Gen Z and saying, listen, everything that you see all around you every single day is promising you a lie. The answers that you seek will not be found you know, in, these, in this material way. And in truth, that which we seek the most will be found through connectivity, through getting back to nature, to these things that you're talking about. And it requires like a material shedding as much as it does kind of a, a, a psychological rebooting of your software to really understand that you need to look at the world through a different pair of glasses. I think that's true. And I think it's interesting that this is playing out with teenagers so much because... Um, the figures for teenage distress are really shocking. Yeah, I mean, what are they? They're super high. They're exceptionally high. I mean, there's a varying... Part of it is difficult to measure distress over time because some of the figures that show astronomical increases, I think, are slightly misleading because there's been a decline in stigma of talking about it. Mm -hmm. So that would mean that more people... For example, my grandmother, I'm sure from having discussed this with her while she was alive... Um, was terribly depressed in her 30s and 40s. If anyone had ever asked her, are you depressed? She would have said no, and she would never have dreamed of going to the doctor. So there's been, whereas it would, you know, if, um, you know, a relative of mine the same age now, does they, they, would, they would say yes and they would get help. Uh, they would go to the doctor for help. So I think the kind of stratospheric figures for increase are misleading, but I do think there's good evidence there has been a significant increase. Um, we know teenage suicide, for example, has gone up, which is obviously a very relatively easy way of measuring extreme distress. But I want to think about, obviously, one of the factors we think about when we talk about teenagers is social media and so on. I want to think about this. One of the places that really helped me to understand it is I went to the first ever internet rehab center in the United States. Oh, it's, well, it's there, in, there's something like that yeah, exists. It's I'm in, glad it does. It should exist. It's in Spokane. It's just outside Spokane in Washington. And I remember when I arrived there, <laughs> I remember getting out of the car 
and absolutely instinctively looking at my phone and being really pissed off that there was no reception for me to check my email. And I was like, <laughs> oh, wait, you're in the Where right place. Where are you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What is this place? Um, I remember going in there. No and t- Wi-Fi. It was hell. What can I say? But I remember going in there and talking to these... The, the, so they get all kinds of... It's a place called Restart Washington. They get all kinds of people at Restart Washington, but they disproportionately get young men who become obsessed with these multiplayer role-player games like World of Warcraft uh-huh. or Fortnite. Although Fortnite didn't exist at the time that I was there, it's become an issue for them since, I'm sure. Um, and speaking to these young men, I was kind of, I felt like I was getting this kind of insight. And then I spoke to Dr. Hilary Cash, who, who runs the, co-runs the place. I was a great person. And she really helped me to understand it. So she said to me something like, you've got to ask yourself, what are these young men getting out of these games? They're getting the things they used to get from the culture, but they no longer get. Um, so what do they get? They get a sense of tribe and identity. They get a sense of status and a way they can gain status, that they can feel they're good at something. Um, they get a sense they're physically roaming around. The average ch- child in Britain now spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner because by law, a maximum security prisoner has to have 70 minutes a day, and most of our kids don't get that. Um, but what they're getting is like a kind of parody of those things, right? I began to think as I was speaking to her and the young men there, the relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between porn and sex, right? I'm not anti-porn, but if your entire sex life consists of looking at porn, you're going to be going around pissed off and irritated the whole time because you didn't evolve to masturbate over a screen, you evolved to have sex. Mm -hmm. In the same way, um, there's a place for screen-based interaction. Of course, I'm not some weird Luddite, but that's not what we evolved to have. If you and I were having this conversation over Skype, I wouldn't feel you were hearing me and you wouldn't feel you were hearing no. uh, the, the other way around in the way that we feel we're hearing and seeing each other now, right? Um, and, and that led me to think about, well, you've got to think about when did the internet arrive, right? Because you can get into a simplistic dialogue where you say, this is just the internet's for the internet's this horror show. But if you think about it and you look at the, the, the evidence on this, the internet arrives for most of us in the late 90s, the early 2000s. I sent my first email in the year 2000. And a lot, not all, but a lot of the causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections had actually already been supercharged by that point. So we've talked about a couple of the loneliness, mm. meaningless work. Um, but junk values and what happens is the internet arrives and it looks a lot like the things we've lost right you've lost friends here's a whole range of facebook friends you've lost status do as many status updates as you want right but again it's 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 like a parody of the thing we've lost and the expert on loneliness professor john cassiopo said to me gave me a good kind of rule of thumb which is if you're turning to the internet as a way station to meet people offline great if it's the last destination on the line, generally something's gone wrong. Yeah, it's uh, it's um, it's a tricky thing because this is the the lexicon. You know, this is how more and more people are communicating, and the solution isn't to completely put the phone away and never use it and become a luddite, um, but these devices are specifically designed to 
create that addictive response. I mean, I think this is a perfect example of where the work that you've done in addiction and depression dovetail directly into each other because you have a highly addictive device in the hands of an undeveloped young mind uh, with apps on it that are specifically created to create that you know, serotonin response that makes it almost impossible for that kid to put that phone away. So short of um, completely putting it away, how do we, as a parent, like this is something I think about all the time, like how do we create structures around it to foster a healthy relationship with the best of what it can do, which is, you know, like they communicate with their friends and they see their friends at school. So there is that offline component to it. But it very easily, if left unchecked, can devolve. And I think it does and has with thousands, if not millions of teenagers, into a compulsive behavior pattern that is truly an addiction that um, you know, leads these young people to a very, very dark place. And it's not necessarily just young people. But I think that's true. And I think we've also got to look at, a bit like going back to Rat Park, that addiction occurs in a context, right? And I think it's worth explaining to people the way we are raising our children is deeply weird and has never been tried by any group of yeah, human beings before. We have no idea the long-term implications But I don't mean just with our phones. If you think about the nuclear family, right, where the child remains indoors with two, mm-hmm. pe- two adults, or if they're lucky, or one adult, if they're not, um, that's not a model of child-rearing that's ever been tried by human beings, right? Human beings have always been raised by villages, by groups, by tribes, right? It's a very recent thing that we would imprison our children in the home and get them, try to get them to get all their emotional or most of their emotional needs from just one or two adults who, by the way, are working 50 hours a right. week or whatever it is. Um, so we've got this... I think the, the cell phone addiction occurs rather like the heroin addiction in the rats occurred in the circumstances of isolation and imprisonment. The cell phone addiction is a, an unmet psychological needs. The cell, the cell phone... Um, addiction is happening in a context where the children's basic needs are not being met. There's a wonderful guy called Professor Peter Gray who I was speaking to about this recently in Boston. So just children have a need to run around. They have a need to play. And unsupervised play, there's a lot of evidence, unsupervised play is an absolutely essential part of child development. There's been, I think the figure is something like a 20% decline at least in unsupervised play yeah. in the last 10 years, right? Yeah. So Parents been, are afraid to let their kids go outside at all. Yeah. Or when they do play, they've got to be constantly referencing back to, you know, the adult for what do I do now? What do I do now? Or it's all um, super organized. Exactly. You go from structured event to a structured event. Exactly. That's And that's good for children in some, of course, in, as part of a balanced diet, that's a healthy thing. But if that's most of what the kid is getting, they're not able to develop in a healthy way. And um, so you've got this context of a very weird form of toxic childhood and weird childhood, often tragically motivated by love, right? Not motivated by a desire to hurt the child. Quite the opposite, a desire to protect the child um, that has led to... Uh, so in that context... If the one thing that gives you any sense of relief or pleasure is the phone, Fortnite, whatever it is, you're going to... It's not to dispute there are things about the game. These games Mm -hmm. are designed by some of the cleverest people in the world to keep you hooked. Uh, The points you're making are absolutely right. 
But like all addiction, you need to look at the object of the addiction and then the context in which the addiction occurs. Right. And I think both those things are really important. And the factors that are causing depression and anxiety in adults through unmet needs are even more uh, heartbreaking when you see them playing out in children. And we're doing the same over biologization. I think one of the great scandals in this country is 30% of children in the foster care system are being given at least one psychiatric drug. I mean, think about that. Yeah. It is not that 30% of children in the foster care system happen to have defective brains, right? These are profoundly distressed children. And as a culture, what are we doing? Rather than dealing with their distress, loving them, caring for them, looking after them, we're drugging them into submission. That's 30%, by the way, at any given time. So it's actually going to be more over, over wow. the span of their time in foster care. That's an obscenity. One in 10 American, 13-year-old American boys is being given a stimulant drug at any time. You don't tell me that one in 10 American boys has some kind of defective, broken, diseased brain. This is bullshit, right? These are kids who, who need to, you know, need love. They need to have their needs met. They need to run around. They need to play. There's all sorts of things going on here that are being boiled down in this extraordinarily simplistic way to, you know, a brain disease that needs to be drugged. Not to say that some of them don't have some problems in their brains. Of course they do. But this is a we've ended up with a grossly simplistic narrative about our distress from childhood where they're drugged into submission to when you're in an old people's home and half of them are given antipsychotics to shut them up, you know, right the way through their lives. This is not a sensible way. We need to think in a much deeper, more honest, more loving and complex way about our distress. We need to listen to the signals that it's giving us. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today, that's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And 
With that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. What are the statistics on uh, the diagnosis of ADHD with kids? I, mean, I haven't that, written about this. I don't want to. I don't want to. Oh, it's. Yeah. In, I know it's enormous. It's super high, and, yeah. right? And I often wonder, like, are we over um, diagnosing these people? Certainly, we're over medicating them, and we've patho- we've created this syndrome or disease. And look, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to say it doesn't exist, but. There is an argument that, you know, a hyperactive kid or a slightly active kid who has trouble sitting in a classroom and focusing, uh, there's an argument to be made that that's perfectly normal. Uh, well, a child fact, of that age and to pathologize that and say we need to medicate this kid because he can't pay attention, yeah. um, I think is really problematic. Well, you get rid of recess and gym and kids can't sit still. And, and you like, go, oh, what a mysterious thing. These children have developed brain diseases. How, what a funny coincidence, uh-huh. right? It's not to say there aren't some children who, for a complex range of reasons, genuinely have problems focusing and need help. Certainly there are, co- yeah. But this connects to another thing that it was the hardest cause of depression and anxiety for me to write about. And it, it has a manifestation in very related to what you're, what you're saying. So um, if I tell you the story of how it was discovered, for a minute you're going to think, why is he telling me this? What's it got to do with anything? But I think it's only possible to really understand we it. we got time. The story. So um, not so far from here in San Diego, um, in the mid-1980s, a doctor called Dr. Vincent Felitti was given a quite difficult task. 
He was approached by Kaiser Permanente, the big not-for-profit medical provider in San Diego and here in California. And um, they said to him, look, we've got a big problem. Every year, obesity is rising. Um, and everything we're trying, like giving people diet advice, all that stuff, none of it's working. What can we do? Uh, so they gave him quite a big budget. And they said, look, just do Blue Skies research, figure out what the hell we can do. So Dr. Felidi started to work with um, 250 extremely obese people, people weighed more than 400 pounds. And one day he's interviewing one of them and he has this idea, which seems like an insult, I mean, it actually is a kind of dumb idea. Uh, he, he asked himself, what would happen if really obese people literally just stopped eating and we gave them like vitamin C shots so they didn't get scurvy and all of those things? Would they just burn through the fat stores in their body and get down to a normal weight? So obviously with a huge amount of medical supervision, they start doing this. And in one sense, it worked. So there's a woman who I'm going to call Susan to protect her medical confidentiality who went down from being more than, a, uh, more than 400 pounds to 138 pounds. Incredible, right? Mm -hmm. Her family are telling Dr. Felidi he saved her life. She's rejoicing. He's rejoicing. And then one day something happened they didn't expect. Susan cracked. She starts obsessively eating at KFC or wherever it was. And quite soon she's back at a dangerous weight. And she comes in to see Dr. Felitti, calls her in. And he says, Susan, what happened? And she looks down. She's really ashamed. She says, I don't know. I don't know. And after a while he said, well, tell me about the day you cracked. What happened that day? It turns out something had happened that day that had never happened to Susan. She'd been in a bar and a man had hit on her, not in like a predatory or awful way, but um, expressed sexual interest in her. She felt really frightened. She went and started eating. Dr. Felitti thought this was interesting. He said to her, when did you start to put on weight? In her case, it was when she was 11. He said, did anything happen when you were 11 that didn't happen when you were five or nine or 14, anything that year? And she looked down and she said, uh, yeah, that's when my grandfather started to rape me. He started to interview everyone in the program. He discovered that 55% of them had put on their extreme weight in the aftermath of being sexually abused. He was really puzzled by this, like, what's going on here? Susan explained it to him. She said, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I want to be. He realized this thing that seems pathological, and of course is bad for you, obesity, was performing a function. Right? It had a rational function. It was protecting them was from sexual attention. It was a defense mechanism for dealing with unhealed childhood trauma. You know, it makes perfect sense. It's, it's very much in the vein of what Gabor Mate talks about, unhealed childhood trauma fueling addiction or unhealthy behavior patterns. It's so interesting that all it took was this person asking the right questions to get to the bottom of what was fueling this entire problem for well, this woman. It's interesting because this was a relatively small study. So Dr. Felidi, it's hard to draw conclusions from you know, a group of 250 people. So Dr. Felidi went to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, the main body that funds medical research in the United States. And he got a um, huge amount of funding to do this, uh, to do a massive study. So everyone who came to San Diego, um, everyone, everyone in San Diego who came for medical care for an entire year was given, it didn't matter what for, headaches, broken legs, schizophrenia, anything, was given a questionnaire, it had two parts. First part said, did any of these bad things happen to you when you were a kid? Things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect. And the second part asked, have you had any of these problems as an adult? 
things like uh, obesity, addiction, suicide attempts, depression. And at first, when they calculated it out, the CDC thought they'd made a mistake because the figures were so extreme. For every category of childhood trauma you experienced, you were two to four times more likely to become depressed and anxious. But it was when you got into the multiple categories, the figures just exploded. If you'd had six categories of childhood trauma, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide and 4,600% to have an addiction problem. I mean, you just don't Mm. get figures like that very often. And it's funny, when I remember the first day, first time I interviewed Dr. Feliti, I went to see him down in San Diego. And he's a wonderful, wonderful man. And if you met him, you would really admire him. And uh, I remember leaving and like shaking with anger, being so angry, I actually thought I might hit him, which is really, I was like, why am I reacting this way? This is so weird. Um, and I had experienced as a child some very extreme acts from an adult in my life. And I remember thinking that day, you know, I'd never thought about that in relation to my depression, which seems ludicrous now, looking back at it. Was it I'd, a repressed <clears throat> memory or just no, no, something, no, I mean, you something just, I'd always remembered? You I just were never. dismissive of? Or... Yeah, no, it, I mean, so I was dismissive of it. It's just, it was in one silo in my head, yeah. you know, under stuff that happened then. And I didn't really think of it as related to the silo that was about depression and anxiety and why I might feel that way. I think it's one of the reasons, actually, why I clung to this very simplistic story my doctor told me about serotonin for so long. Because then you don't really have to go look at that. Yeah, I didn't want to, th- exactly. I didn't want to think yeah. about, I didn't want to give this individual power over me now. I didn't want to think about these things. But one of the reasons I'm glad that I did stay with this insight and I did go and see Dr. Galuti again was because of what he discovered next, right? So once I'd done this study and people all over San Diego, a lot of them had indicated they'd experienced childhood trauma, their doctor was told, Don't call them back, but next time they come in, say to them something like this. I see that when you were a child, you were sexually abused or whatever the nature of the abuse was. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened. Would you like to talk about it? 40% of people said, I don't want to talk about it, but 60% of people did want to talk about it. And they want to talk about it on average for five minutes. What was extraordinary was just those five minutes of an authority figure saying, I'm so sorry, That should never have happened. That alone led to a significant fall in depression and anxiety. And then it was randomly, some of them were randomly assigned to a therapist to talk about it more. And they had an even bigger fall. Mm. And the reason is, I think, it fits with a much wider body of research into shame. There's a guy called Professor James Pennebaker at Florida State University has done interesting work on this. So we know that shame destroys you, right? Physically, mentally destroys you. During the AIDS crisis, Openly gay men died on average two years later than closeted gay men, even when they got healthcare at the same time, Mm. right? Shame is desperately physically destructive and mentally destructive. And those things, of course, are not entirely separate, as you've done lots of work on. And giving people a way to release their shame is profoundly physically healing and mentally healing. It, It, in fact, should be regarded as an antidepressant. And, you know, it was after one of the other scientists who worked on that program, um, a man called Dr. Robert Ander, said to me it made him realize when we see someone who's behaving with an apparent pathology, whether it's obesity, addiction, depression, we need to stop asking what's wrong with you and start asking what happened to you. And 
think it was that more than any other causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about, although the other eight are really important, that made me realise how mistaken what my doctor did was when I was a teenager, right? So I'd gone to my doctor, I'd been profoundly distressed. I'm not sure, I suspect if the doctor had said to me, has anything happened to you that made you feel this way? I would not have been able to talk about it anyway. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to be simplistic about this. But the fact that I was given a story, I was given a story that diverted me from these real causes. That wasn't the only cause of my depression, but I think it was really significant. The story I was told diverted me from that story. Now with my complicity, for sure, um, it, and I think I would have been able to deal with my depression much earlier had I been told a more truthful, complex and nuanced story and given a more complex menu of options for how to respond to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a criticism of that individual doctor who had seven minutes to see each patient is, and I'm sure was saying what he honestly thought was true but it is a criticism of a society that's put us in this position that's responding to distressed children and distressed adults with this remarkably simplistic story that we know isn't right. Yeah, I mean, there is, I mean, there are plenty of people, like what would have happened had you been directed to therapy instead, right? And told, listen, you're going to get, you know, six one-hour sessions and you can sit there and not answer any of the questions, but you're going to have to show up for them. Like if your parent or somebody in your family had said, look, we can see you're suffering, like, let's try this. Perhaps that would have led you in a different direction. I think part of the problem is that most of the therapy that people are assigned to is cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Which does have some value, so people might not know. Cognitive behavioral therapy descends from the ideas of a psychologist called Aaron Beck, who basically argued, I'm slightly caricaturing him, but I think most of his followers slightly caricature him as well, um, that that um, most of our problems, certainly depression, come from defective thought patterns, right? There's some truth in this. This is not untrue, right? We all know people, for example, I saw someone, better not say too many details about this, but I recently here in LA saw an old friend whose life is going great and is miserable as hell and just is one of those people who just looks at all their benefits in life. We're kind of pe- looking for the worst in everything, right? Welcome to Los Angeles. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, it's true. Yeah. It's true. But the, uh, it's true. Actually, all my British friends here, with yeah. one exception, I like that. But the, um, that is poor cognitive skills, right? Partly, and there's lots of other things going on in that individual's life. Obviously, I don't want to be simplistic. But that person has poor cognitive skills. They, 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 their thought patterns tend them to look for the worst. And I believe this individual would benefit from CBT. So I'm not saying there's no role for CBT. But I also think CBT is really limited, right? Now, there are lots of CBT practitioners who go beyond the limits of CBT and are actually complex and so on. But um, it's limited because this explanation of human distress is really limited. And um, think about that farmer in the field in Cambodia, you know, who's having to, to, you know... um, with an artificial leg is having to work in the rice fields, right? Now, the CBT treatment for him would be to say, we've Tell got to help your mom. you. Well, got, no, it wouldn't, it wouldn't <laughs> even be, let's <laughs> talk about your mother. Yeah. That's the Freudian thing, uh-huh. right? It'd be right. even worse than that. That maybe, it would bring up trauma about his mother. It, what they would say is we've got to think about the thought patterns right. that are, le- I mean, if they were to adhere strictly to the simplistic edicts of this, 
I suspect most CBT practitioners would be more sophisticated, but it would be to say, let's think about how we can alter your thought patterns and your habits of mind so you will be less distressed, right? Mm -hmm. That guy didn't need CBT. That guy needed a cow. He needed a practical intervention to change his environment, right? There are some people who will benefit from CBT. I'm in favor of it for some people. I, in fact, recommended it to my friend. Um, But that's not most of what's going on, right? It's not attending to most of what's going on, which is why the evidence shows, rather like with chemical antidepressants, for most people, CBT has a real effect that diminishes quite rapidly over time, right? So I think part of the problem is we... we, There's a reason, by the way, why CBT is very popular with neoliberal governments, whether it's in Britain, massively championed by David Cameron, in Florida, Governor Rick Scott. There's a whole range of places that have championed it because it's basically a kind of get back to work, right? Come on now, come on now. Enough of this silly thinking. We're going to get you back to work. I mean, that's again, I'm caricaturing, mm-hmm. but there is an aspect of it that's like that, right? Rather than, say, Joanne Cassiatore, who's the amazing woman who did all that work on grief, which is about, you know, you're not wrong to feel terrible. Your thought patterns, in, for many people, you're not wrong to be angry and distressed and hostile. In fact, you should be angry, distressed, and hostile in this situation. Let's use that anger and hostility to change your environment. And I think the most important places I saw were places where they had they acted on those insights, which is not to say CBT doesn't have some useful insights, because yeah, it does. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I love the idea of, of how powerful it can be to change your environment. And when I look at, you know, like we go through the causes that you talk about um, in your book that are contributing to this epidemic of anxiety and depression, and they all kind of fall under this, you know, rubric of disconnection, and the solutions are all about reconnection. And when I look, when I hear you talking about, you know, changing your environment to make the environment more conducive to the solution, uh, it reminds me of the work that um, Dan Buettner has done with Blue Zones. Do you know? Do I don't you know, know about, about this. this. Tell so, me about it. So Dan is an amazing guy. And he spent many years traveling all over the world to find uh, the people, the cultures that live the longest, the highest concentration per capita of centenarians. Um, He found these, I don't know, there's six or nine of them or something like that. They're called blue zones. They're in places that um, have been sort of removed from uh, modern progress, uh, for lack of a better phrase, like Icaria and the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. Um, There's various pockets Hmm. around the world. And there's one in just outside of Los Angeles um, with the Seventh-day Adventist um, uh, faith community. Um, And it's super interesting what he's discovered. And then he kind of... uh, That's fascinating. Yeah, it's super interesting. I'm getting to the more interesting, relevant part for you. But then he then did it again to say, okay, I want to find the happiest people. And there was some overlap between these happiness blue zones and the centenarian blue zones. Um, And then he was able to to extract from this experience and all the time that he spent with these people to kind of divine the principles that are um, contributing to longevity and happiness. And and these overlap as well. And they're very similar to yours. Like it's almost a blueprint here that's emerging if you were to synthesize his work and your work. And so much of it is about connection. you know, from his perspective, connection, you know, it's about 
maintaining uh, households with your elders and keeping the extended family around. It's about your faith community. It's about always moving your body gently throughout the day. It's all of these things that we have done historically throughout the ages of human evolution that it's only recently that we've been disconnected from. So I think that's super interesting. And now he has this program where he goes to cities um, who have high incidences of obesity and on, you know lots of unhealthy people um, and and you know insurance companies that uh, you know co- corporations that are paying high premiums that want to get their premiums down and he helps consult uh, with governments and corporations to create systems and structures that will contribute to um, a healthier population that will live longer and ultimately you know through this experience he will say to you look, you can give people, you can have them read self-help books, you can give them this diet or that diet or tell them they need to do this, that, or the other thing. But ultimately, for the most part, like these things don't really work or they don't stick over the long haul. What does work is when you change the environment to make the environment conducive to the healthy choice, whether that healthy choice is emotional, mental, physical, nutrition-related, whatever it is, the healthy choice has to be at arm's reach. So you have to create bike paths and make bikes available, uh, You know, make it easy for people to ride their bikes to work is a simple example. You need to get the soda machines out of the schools, like very simple things so that um, doing, the, doing the unhealthy thing becomes harder, right? And when I look at your work and I think about how that applies to depression, um, anxiety, mental illness, even addiction in certain respects, like I see a lot of overlap. Yeah, I think that's true. There's there's an academic I interviewed called Brett, Dr. Brett Ford, who did up in Berkeley, who did this really interesting research, I think is very relevant to what you just said. It's kind of simple. She did it with her colleagues. They did it in four countries. Um, they wanted to figure out, if you decided you were going to spend more time consciously trying to be happier, would you actually become happier? They did this research in the United States, in Taiwan, in Russia, and in Japan. What they found at first was really odd. In the United States, if you try consciously to make yourself happier, you do not become happier. In the other countries, if you try to make yourself consciously become happier, you do. And at first they were like, what's going on here? How can that be? What they discovered was, in the United States, if you try to make yourself happier, generally what we do is do something for yourself, right? I go shopping, I treat myself, I indulge myself, I mm-hmm. eat, whatever it is. But it's me, me, me. It's an individualistic vision of happiness, exactly. In the other countries, generally, and of course there were exceptions on both sides, but generally, if you try to make yourself happier, you do something for someone else. You do something for your friends, your family, your community. So while we have an instinctively individualistic idea of happiness, they have an instinctively collective idea of happiness. It turns out our vision of happiness just doesn't work, right? Like we said before, species that thought like that would have died out on the savannas of Africa. And it was striking to me, I spent some time in an Amish village in Indiana. And, you know, the Amish are not congenial to me in many ways, right? And yeah, I went there because, Hold as you can imagine, right? I'm a, <laughs> they just—they were not welcoming of you. No, they were very nice, but they, you know, look, I'm a left-wing gay atheist, yeah. right? Like, I, and you know, they're—they're they're yeah. not having any pride parades in the uh-huh. Amish village anytime soon, right? Uh-huh. And yet, there's all this evidence that the Amish have exceptionally low levels of depression and anxiety, as do generally groups who live like them, like the the Hutterites. Um, and I could kind of see why, right? They, they, which is not to say there are not serious problems with the Amish and the way they live, because there are. But the, 
it was very striking to me. And, and I think, you know, I was thinking as you were talking, obviously I learned a huge amount of the stuff that I talk about in Lost Connections. I'm out of the book Chasing the Scream from scientists and experts and so on. But actually, one of the places that taught me the most about what you're saying is um, a totally different place. I'll just tell you the story of it if you want, because I, I think about it every day. So in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous housing project in Berlin, uh, a woman called Nuria Cengiz climbed out of her wheelchair and she put a sign in her window. She lived on a ground, lived in a ground floor apartment. And the sign said something like, I got a notice saying I'm going to be evicted from my apartment next Friday, so next Thursday night I'm going to kill myself. Now, this is a kind of housing project in a slightly strange place. It's in the middle of Berlin. And when they threw up the, the Berlin Wall, they built it very quickly, obviously. This was the bit of West Berlin that kind of jutted into East Berlin, mm -hmm. right? When they did the wall, so it's like a fang, right? Mm -hmm. So if the Soviets had invaded, it would have been the front line. So no one wanted to live there. Mm -hmm. So the only people who lived there when the wall was there were three groups. Recent Muslim immigrants, like this woman, Nuria, uh, gay men, and punk squatters, right? And as you can imagine, these three groups looked at each other with some That's incomprehension. A party. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, no one really knew anyone, right? Yeah. And and then the wall came down and suddenly they've got like this prime real estate in the middle of Berlin. So everyone's rent was going up. Loads of people were being evicted. Anyway, no one knew this woman. People start to knock on her door and they're like, do you need any help? She said, screw you, I don't want any help. I'm going to kill myself. And outside the apartment, some of the people who lived there didn't know each other started chatting. And one of them had this idea there's a big uh, thoroughfare that goes into the centre of Berlin that runs through this project. It's called Cotti. I had the idea, if we just block the street for a day, on a Saturday, there'll probably be a fuss. The media will probably come. They'll probably let Nuria stay in her apartment. Maybe there'll be some pressure for us to, you know, mm -hmm. um, our rents to be kept down too in this disaster to stop. Uh, so they decided to do it. They went and built a barricade in the middle of the road. Uh, and Nuria was like, well, I'm going to kill myself anyway. I may as well let them wheel me <laughs> out there. Matter. They wheel her out there, and the media did come, and they interviewed Nuria and the other residents. It's a bit of a fuss, and it gets to the end of the day, and the police say, okay, you've had your fun, take it down. But the people who lived in Cotty said, well, hang on a minute. You haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. And actually, we want a rent freeze for our entire block, this, this whole housing project. So when you give us that, we'll take it down. But of course they knew the minute they left the barricade, the police would just tear it down. So one of my favorite people at Cotia, one of the punk squatters, her name's Tanya Gartner. She wears tiny miniskirts even in Berlin winters. She's hardcore. Tanya had this, uh, uh, in her apartment, she had a klaxon, you know, those things that make a loud noise at football matches. She went and got it. She came down and she said, okay, everyone, what we're going to do is we could drop a timetable to man this barricade 24 hours a day uh, until we get what we want. If the police come to take it down, let off the klaxon, and we'll all come down from our apartments and we'll all stop them. Right. So people start to sign up to man the barricade, right? Don't know each other. Um, Tanya, in her tiny little miniskirt, was paired with Nuria in her full hijab, right? And uh, these kind of pairings were happening all over Cotty. And first, I think, they had, I think they had the Thursday night shift. Tanya and Nuria are like, we've got nothing to talk about, right? What are we right. going to talk about? It couldn't be more unlikely. Um, so they sit there through the night, barely speaking, first few times. As the nights went on, um, they started to talk. They realized they had something incredibly powerful in common. Um, Nuria told Tanya something she'd never told anyone. So 
she had come to Berlin when she was 16 from a village in Turkey with her two young children. And she was sent to raise enough money to send back for her husband to come mm-hmm. and join her. After she'd been in Berlin for a year, she got word from home that her husband had died. And she told Tanya that she'd always told people that he died of, of a heart attack. Actually, he died of tuberculosis, which was seen as like a disease of poverty. So when Tanya told Nuria something she didn't talk about very often, she had come to Kotti when she was 15. She'd been thrown out by her middle-class family. She found her way to a squat. She'd lived there for a little while. She got pregnant. They realised they had both been kind of children with children themselves in this place that they were very, that where they'd been very frightened. They realised they were saying really powerful in common. These kind of pairings were happening all over Kotti. There was a young lad called Mehmet who kept being, they kept nearly throwing him out of school. They said he had ADHD. He was paired with this grumpy old white guy who said he didn't believe in direct action because he loved Stalin, but in this case, he'd make an exception. They did a shift together. He, the old white guy started helping Mehmet with his homework. Mehmet started doing a lot better. Um, directly opposite this, this housing project, there's um, a gay club called Zudblock that opened four years before the protest began. And um, it's run by a guy I love called Richard Stein, who... They're pretty uncompromising, to give you a sense of it. The previous place he owned was called Cafe Anal. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? So, as you can uh-huh. imagine, there's a lot of Muslim immigrants in this, and uh, Muslim Germans in this, in, this, um, in this housing project. When they first opened the club, there was a lot of people who were really pissed off. In fact, their windows got smashed. But after the protest had been going for a little while, in fact, very early on, the gay club gave all their furniture to the protest. They were like, they gave free drinks. They were like, you know, after a while, they said, you know, you guys should have your meetings in our club. We... Mm. But even the lefties at Cotty were like, we're not going to get these very religious Muslims to come and, you know, have their meetings underneath posters for fisting night, right? It's not going to happen, right? But actually, it did start, as one of the Muslim women there said to me, we all realised we had to take these small steps to understand each other. After the protest had been going on for about a year, one day, um, a man arrived at Cotty. He was in his early 50s. He was called, he's called Tunkai. And it's um, clear when you meet Tunkai, he's got some kind of cognitive difficulties. He'd been living homeless. But he also has an amazing energy about him. Everyone immediately liked him. Uh, and after he was there for two or three days, that by this time they'd actually turned their barricade into a permanent structure in the street. And they said, with a roof and everything. And they said, you know, you should start living here. We don't want you to be homeless. He started living there. He became a much-loved part of the Cotti protest. Nine months later, one day the police came to inspect. They would come and inspect every now and then. And Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue. He thought the police were arguing. So he went to try to hug one of the officers. They thought he was attacking them, so they, they, they arrested him. That was when it was discovered that Tunkai had been shut away in a psychiatric, hospital, a psychiatric hospital, often in a padded cell for 20 years. He'd escaped one day, he'd lived on the streets for a few months, and then he found his way to Cotty. So the police took him back to the psychiatric hospital, and he's put back in his cell. Mm. At which point, the entire Cotty housing project turned into a kind of free Tonkai movement, right? They descend oh on this psychiatric God. hospital, and the psychiatrists are like, what is this? They've got all these, like, Muslim women in hijabs, these gay, very camp gay men, and these punks demanding the release of this person they had shut away for 20 years. They don't understand it. But I remember Uli um, Kaltenborn, one of the protesters, saying to them, you know, you don't love him. He doesn't belong with you. 
We love him. He belongs with us. I remember thinking, you know, how many of us, if someone carted us away, would have hundreds of people descending saying, no, we love this right. person, right? Anyway, many things happened to Cotty. I mean, I, that's like a movie. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's like a movie you'd see at Sundance or something I think like they that. think that I'm slightly <laughs> crazy to people at Cotty because I would turn up every, you know, four or five months, talk to them and just burst into tears. I thought it was so moving. I remember one of them saying to me once, Johan, I think maybe you have allergies because my oh, eyes would water so much. Anyway. So did she get to keep her apartment and she didn't commit suicide? They got Tunkai back. They got, uh, Nuria got to stay in her neighborhood. They got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. Um, They then launched a referendum initiative to keep rents down across Berlin. Got the largest number of written signatures in the history of the city of Berlin. But the last time I saw Nuria, (laughs) she said to me, you know, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighborhood. That's wonderful. I gained so much more than that. You know, um, she said, you know, I was surrounded by these amazing people all along and I never knew. And I remember, I'm thinking then, you know, one of um, Nuria's friends, another one of the women who took part in the protest is this woman called Neriman Manker, who's a Turkish German woman. And she said to me, you know, um, when I grew up in, in Turkey, I grew up in a village and I called my whole village home. And I came to live in the Western world. And I learned that what we're meant to call home is just our four walls. And then this protest began. And I started to think of this whole place and all these people as my home. And I realized talking to her that in some sense, in this culture, we are homeless. You need to feel you belong. The sense of home we've built is not big enough for that sense of belonging. The the Bosnian writer Alexander Heyman said, home is where people notice when you're not there, right? Mm Lots of people are homeless in that sense. Um, and I, I remember thinking so clearly in Cotty, think about how distressed these people were. Nuria was about to kill herself. Mehmet kept being nearly thrown out of school. They said he had ADHD. Tunkai was shut away in a padded cell. Loads of them were depressed and anxious. These people did not need to be drugged, most of them. They needed to be together. They needed to have a sense of meaning and purpose. They needed a home. And I remember, I remember one time sitting with, with Tanya outside uh, Zudblock, the gay club, and her saying to me, you know, when you're at home and you, when you're in your house and you're all alone and you feel like shit, you think there's something wrong with you. But what we did is we came out of our corner fighting and we realized we were surrounded by people who feel like, felt like this and we realized how strong we could be. And to me, it was such an important lesson about about what's gone wrong. And you know, the people mm-hmm. at Cotty, I love those people. They are amazing people. But in one sense, they are not exceptional people, right? They are ordinary people. This was just beneath the surface. It did not take much for them to see how powerful this could be. Um, and this is just beneath the surface everywhere. This is, this is you know, I remember um, in the run up to the 2016 election being in, in um, in West Cleveland with a group of people who were doing get out the vote work I'm, I was following for a different book I'm writing. And we were on one of those streets in West Cleveland where a third of the houses had been demolished, a third had been abandoned, a third still had people living in them, um, often behind actual barbed wire. And we, we knocked on one door and there was a woman, who I would have guessed from looking at her was 60. I realized she was actually the same, she said she was the same age as me. I was 37 at the time, I was amazed. She'd had a really hard life. She was very articulate, extremely angry, absolutely refusing to vote for Hillary. And um, she made this, this verbal slip that really stayed with me. 
she she was talking about the area used to be like for parents and grandparents. And she meant to say when I was young. What she actually said is when I was alive. And it really knocked me back. And I remember looking at her street and all these people hiding behind barbed wire with all these cameras in front of their houses. They have no money, but they've got enough to buy a camera, right? And I thought, the solution to what you need is all around you. And you've been cut off by this culture from seeing it, right? You've literally put barbed wire between you and the people next to you. Um, and I thought about Cotty and I thought about what this woman needed. And I, and I thought about the, the sickness in this culture that we've been so... We've been, we've been driven away from seeing the solution that's right in front of us. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's haunting. Uh, that story about the woman. But I think that that story about Kati perfectly encapsulates essentially every facet of what you talk about. It's like this amazing drama that plays out that elucidates not only the problem, but also the solution and the simplicity of the solution. And we have to wind this down because we got to get you to Santa Monica, but <laughs> I want to leave it on a little bit of a solution-oriented, optimistic note. Um, understanding you know, the, the, the cultural drives that are compelling so many of us in this unhealthy direction that's contributing to all of these um, disorders that we're seeing and intellectually understanding that the solution is within arm's reach, it's still so difficult for people to access. And we can tell these stories and you can inspire people, but there's that person who's listening who's like, you don't understand my pain. Like, that's great, but like, I got three kids and I'm super depressed, I can barely get out of bed and I'm just trying to make it through the day. I don't live in an apartment building where we can, you know, block off the street and have a protest. You know, so what are some of the things that that like where can somebody begin to try to build community and connection with others, with nature, um, so that they can find that that hopeful thread that they can pull on that will shine some light. So I would say two things about that. The first is one of my closest relatives is a struggling single mom who works every hour she can to keep her kids in their apartment. And when she gets home, she collapses and is too tired to even watch television most nights. The idea that I would say to her, well, your job now is to democratize your workplace, right. fight for a universal basic uh -huh. income. It would be grotesque to say that to her, right? We don't approach most problems like this. We don't, when we have a discussion about car accidents, we don't say, well, we can't solve the problem of car accidents. What do you say to this person who's just been mangled on the, on the I-95 and is bleeding in the wreckage, right? Well, I'd say, I don't want to talk to that person. I mean, I'll call them an ambulance. I very much want to help mm. them. Let's talk about how we can change things, like by having speed limits and seat bags, uh, seat belts and airbags. Uh, so it doesn't get to the point where so many people are mangled on the I-95, right? Mm. So the first thing I would say is, in a sense, I think the... Well, it's a totally natural and right question. I wouldn't start at that point. I would say mostly my message to the person I love in, in my family who's in that position is, firstly, your pain makes sense. You're not crazy to feel this way. Uh, you have been given a really rough deal. Uh, and I will try to love you and be present with you and help you change your life. Um, 
and I will try to change the culture so you are set free to make more of the changes that you need to make, right? Mm-hmm. So what the person you're talking about who's trapped in this, look, we live in a culture where huge numbers of people are trapped. Half of Americans have less than $500 for if a disaster happens, right? Um, through no fault of their own, because that money has been transferred to the rich, right? Um, the the six heirs to the Walmart fortune, who are heirs, they have done nothing to earn that money, earn more than, own more and have more money than the bottom 100 million Americans, right? Where did your money go? What happened, right? Um, so we created a culture where lots of people are trapped. I want to fight to change the culture so they are no longer trapped. Um, I don't want to give people a false kind of bromide, which is, you know, I go through in the book lots of things people can do. Some of them are coming together and fighting for collective solutions. And some of the things people can do on their own. Um, There's a particular kind of meditation called loving kindness meditation Mm -hmm. that's been proven to really help. I go through other examples. But I don't want to be misleading about this. I don't think there are very good individualistic solutions in a society that's falling apart, where Donald Trump is the most powerful person, where people are profoundly lonely, where they've been taught to value the wrong things, where many of the where the inequality is going off the scale, where they are humiliated and controlled at work. I don't want to be saying to an individual person, hey, here's my little solution for you. Right. It needs a big solution, right? Now, there are smaller things that people can do. Even if you're in solitary confinement in a prison for the rest of your life, there are things you can do. Of course, I don't want to belittle the possibility of individuals to do things because there are individuals they can do. But the most important thing we can do is come together. And that's happening, right? The, 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 there are amazing struggles and they're not privileged people, right? Think about the fight for 15, the fight for a higher minimum wage. And may, you know, um, workers who work in, you know, McDonald's and Burger King and Jack in the Box, you know, coming together to fight for uh, a higher minimum wage, a great example, which gives you more time, which gives you more, more, uh, more of everything, right? Um, there's a whole range of campaigns happening. So I would say the single most important thing is, if you possibly can, and I appreciate some people who can't do this, but if you possibly can, get to a group of people who feel like you, mm-hmm. who can see that they're upset, who can see they've been, that they're wounded and are seeking a solution together. Because partly what I learned at Cotty is the, the struggle is the solution, right? The act of coming together and saying, we've been made to feel like this through no fault of our own and we can fight for a solution together. And sometimes they're long fights, right? I'm gay. Um, the first people to fight for gay rights in the 1870s, that's a long journey from 1870 to, you know, the Supreme Court uh, decision in 2015, you know, for granting equal marriage rights, right? That's a long fight. But the act of coming together and fighting for their own dignity, even in 1870 when they were really early in the fight and they didn't live to see much progress other than the dignity that they stood up and said, the problem here isn't with me, Right. That the, there is a dignity in asserting that, in showing it to other people, in standing with other people. So I would say wherever possible, and there is nowhere in the United States where this is not the case, where you are not surrounded by people who feel in a similar way, find those people, right? We have tools to find those people. Even if all you can do is sit with them for half an hour a week, sit with them if you possibly can. And if you are so wounded you can't do that, okay, then help is on the way. Mm -hmm. The rest of us are going to understand this problem differently. And if you can't fight for yourself, we will try to fight for you. That's powerful. (laughs) It is. No, it's great. You know, I mean, look, we could spend another five hours talking about this (laughs) stuff and we could talk about all manner of things that, that, that people can do 
to try to you know alleviate some of this pain. But I think that's very great, very practical and and powerful advice. I mean, that's look essentially that's how that's the premise of twelve step, right? Which I'm a member of, and it's it's all it's all about getting together with people that share a common uh, dilemma and share a common solution. And the struggle is the solution. It is the community that is created around a shared interest that, uh, that is fundamentally, you know, it, it, it's not about arriving at a future place that is um, in and of itself the salve to the wound, I think, and a great place to start. So. We gotta let you go. You gotta oh, I should just say, can my publishers always yeah. tell me off if I don't say this? Uh, if you would like any more information about the book, if you would like to know where to get the book, the audio book, if you would like to take a quiz to see how much you know about the causes of depression and anxiety, if you would like to listen to audio of lots of the people we've talked about, mm -hmm. what's the other thing they always tell me to say? If you would like to know what a range of people have said about the book, from Elton John to Hillary Clinton to um, um, Tucker Carlson to um, uh, Ariana Brand. Huffington, Russell Brand. Russell Brand. Uh, you go got great to... blurbs. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in your life, but like you got the coolest people to blurb your books. And by the way, I was going to do all that for you, but continue, uh, okay. please. If you want to know any of those things, I always feel like I'm doing some like 1950s mm -hmm. advert, but here we go. Uh, if you go to www.thelostconnections.com, it's not lostconnections.com because it turns out there's a fucking band mm -hmm. called Lost Connections that no one told me about when I was uh, playing the book, uh, although they no longer exist. Uh, they seem very good. I listened to one of their songs. Um, yeah, go to www.thelostconnections.com. You can also find out where to follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Although I was asked in an interview <laughs> recently, they said, what's your Twitter, what's your Facebook? And then they said, what's your Snapchat? And I said, I am a 39-year-old man, right? <laughs> the only 39-year-olds yeah. on Snapchat are certainly pedophiles, yes, right? So, these so you days. cannot find me on Snapchat. It had but, its moment, but exactly. that moment is past. Exactly. Um, and also uh, Chasing the Scream, which is oh, your yeah. book on addiction, so, and ChasingTheScream.com where you can Yeah, ChasingTheScream.com, and other people said nice things about that as well. Yeah. <laughs> what I love about both of these websites and your books is that, as you mentioned, you could go to the sites and you literally have all of these audio of all of these interviews that you've done with all of these people. That yeah, so you, you can listen to the people at Cotty, the people at Cotty, their uh -huh. audio, you can hear how much choked I get right. talking to them. Uh, yeah, yeah, you could listen to audio with all the experts and, and all these people I thought cool. that'd be a good thing to put out there and kind of resource for people. And how's the depression now? How you feel? You look happy, you're smiling. Yeah, no, I feel I'm not depressed at uh -huh. all. Um, I haven't been for quite some time. Although I am always careful to caveat that, which is that I was in the privileged position that I could change my life. And in mm -hmm. a way, what I'm fighting for is for everyone to have the opportunity to do that rather than just going in a kind of simplistic way. Hey, I did this and you can too. Because like my closest relative can't do that at the moment, right? But I'm fighting so that we can change the culture so far more people can be set free to make the changes that would release them from depression and anxiety. All right. Well, thank you, my friend. Hooray. Good. Totally my pleasure. How do you feel? Good, happy. Good. Yeah, it was me great. Too. I really awesome. enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, come back and talk to me anytime. Hooray, I will. All right. This Excellent. Delightful. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Peace. Plants. Some amazing insights there. I found that quite compelling. I could talk to Johan for hours. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to pick up his latest book, Lost Connections, as well as Chasing the Scream. And uh, also, don't forget to check out his TED Talk, all of which I'll put links in the show notes to on the episode page at richroll.com. Uh, do me a favor, let Johan know how this one landed for you by sharing your thoughts with him directly. You can find him on Twitter at Johan Hari 101. 
Plus, don't forget to hit me and DK up with thoughts on his 2019 goals with the hashtag DK goals. If you're looking for additional nutritional guidance to dial in your health goals for 2019, I can't stress enough how helpful our Plant Power Meal Planner can be. Go to meals.richroll.com and there you will find thousands of plant-based recipes, all totally customized based on your personal preferences with unlimited grocery lists. We have grocery delivery integrated into the system in most metropolitan areas. We have incredible customer support from a team of expert health coaches available to you seven days a week. And it's all for just $1.90 a week when you sign up for a year. So to learn more and to sign up, go to meals.richroll.com or click on meal planner on the top menu on my website. If you would like to support the work that we do here on the podcast, just tell your friends about your favorite episode, share the show on social media, hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on YouTube, on Google Podcasts, on Stitcher, wherever you listen to this, Uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that is very helpful. And you can support the show on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I wanna thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo, he's stepping it up, putting more time into the show in a producer role. Also audio engineering, production, show notes, interstitial music, lots of behind the scenes stuff. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for videoing the show and editing it for YouTube. Uh, Jessica Miranda for graphics, DK for advertiser relationships and other production behind the scenes, and theme music as always by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here next week with a highly anticipated episode with the great, the one and only, Killian Journey. A lot of excitement about that one. You're not gonna wanna miss it. Until then, take care of yourselves. Invest in one another. Create and cultivate that connection that we talked about today. Peace. Plants. Namaste.